Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the heart of God. We've been talking about what God is like. How do we get to know Him? How do we get to lean into a relationship with Him? And how do we as people that are clearly imperfect, we clearly do things that are wrong and we make many mistakes and sometimes we willfully disobey the things that we know in our heart are not the things we should be doing. How do we get to have a relationship with a God who is apparently righteous and holy and mighty and the creator of heaven and earth? For many of us, that just seems like it's we're worlds apart, literally. We're, we're just too far removed from what God would be like and what we're like. And how can we, you know, how, you know it's kind of like an, an awkward hug or an awkward relationship. I would take an awkward hug right now. I mean, at this point in my life, having been locked down, not having seen anybody in our church for the last five weeks, I will awkwardly hug anybody. But uh, if you've ever had an awkward hug or an awkward handshake, you know, when you get the finger in the wrong place or, or it just, you know, you don't get a good grip and you kind of end up with, with just, you know, shaking three fingers or something like that. If you've ever had one of those awkward moments saying hello to somebody, um, then, then you can kind of feel like that is what our relationship with God seems like it should be. It should be a little awkward because he's this, this you know, incredibly righteous, holy, perfect God and we're these imperfect, sluggish, lazy, sometimes disobedient people. And how could we have this perfect union and relationship with God? How is that even an option for any of us? And we wanted to talk about that because what we find in the Bible, what we find in the Gospels, the truth of God's word is, is that it's not our goodness or how good we are at giving hugs that has brought us into unity with God. It's actually because of how good he is and everything he's done to reach out to us. And we know this through the life of Jesus. Jesus was the biggest hug God ever gave the world. Um, and that's understating it by a lot, you can imagine. It's an imperfect analogy. But the point is, is that Jesus is the one that came to show us God's heart towards us. So we know the heart of God by looking at Jesus. And we see so much of God's heart through the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And today I want to share a message with you entitled, He is the Good Samaritan. He is the Good Samaritan. One of the incredible things about the early Christians that we find in the book of Acts and in other places uh, of Scripture is that for them, it, there was a time that Christianity and, and being a Christian and believing in Jesus or being a follower of Jesus or a follower of the way, as they used to call it, was punishable by imprisonment or even death. People were being persecuted. Rome was persecuting the, the, the Christian world at that time. And people were being fed to lions and burnt as candles in, in Roman streets. And, and there was this persecution. And so being a Christian wasn't something that you did because you felt that it would benefit you in some way. It's not something that you did because it was just maybe a nice thing to add as an additional comfort to your life. It was the kind of thing that you really had to believe. The Christians were beaten. They were threatened. They were even killed. And yet, in spite of all of that threat, it could not stop people from sharing the message of Jesus. You know, you know the, the, the high priest often would, would throw Christians into prison and have them beaten. And the Christians, once they were released, would go straight back to preaching the message. This has to be a message that has 
you know, that's more than just a set of rules. Come on, nobody gets beaten and imprisoned and just keeps on going because they're really passionate about everybody keeping some rules, right? Nobody gets excited about good advice. Nobody gets that passionate about life hacks or a few good principles to live by. I did my best Santon vibe there. I am from Santon, so it's okay. But nobody gets excited about a few life hacks or principles to live by. A lot of people view church in that way. It's just, they're just going to tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. They're just going to tell me, um, you know, how many rules I'm supposed to follow or why I'm not good enough. And this is one of the reasons why people don't want to go to church because they don't want to be told how bad they are. They already know what they struggle with. If you're watching this and you don't go to church, you probably already know what areas you've longed to have freedom in. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. Why am I always selfish? Or why am I always thinking about myself? Or why am I always uh, concerned about, about how others are treating me? You know, we can create this world where we are the center of it. Why do I struggle with the same addictions, the same issues, you know, the same things? This, I, I fall for the same guy or the, for the same type of girl, you know, and, and, and these things I wish I could break free from. We already know the things we struggle with. We don't need anybody to tell us. I don't want to go to church because all they want to do is make me feel guilty and tell me that if I live a different way, then I would be accepted by God. But when we see Jesus living in this world, when he was walking the earth, the amazing things is that it literally says that sinners were drawn to him. They, you know, people often want to run away from God or run away from church, whatever they feel represents God. But when people saw Jesus and they began to see the heart of God in Jesus, the truth is it drew people towards him. Jesus is attractive to sinners like us. We see something in him that speaks of the grace and the goodness and the acceptance of God that we want to be a part of. And so in the early church, in spite of the danger, in spite of the danger, people were coming to Jesus, not just ones and twos, but multitudes were flocking to come and hear him speak, to be in his presence, to see how he treated others, how he prayed for the sick. And so what was this message that was so incredible that after Jesus had ascended into heaven, people were willing to die for it. People were willing to be thrown into prison and beaten for it. What was the message? What did Jesus say? If we can hear this straight from Jesus's mouth, what did Jesus say was the key to eternal life? Well, luckily for us, someone in the Bible asked that exact question. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at what Jesus said. We find it in the book of Luke, chapter number 10. And in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up, an expert in the law, stood up, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's testing Jesus now. All right, Jesus, now you tell me, what do I need to do? What is What do I need to do? How, how, how am I good enough to get into heaven? If you ask people, how do you get into heaven? They always say, well, you've just got to be a good person. Good people go to heaven and bad people don't. It's kind of like what we've been taught. And so we go, okay, so are you a good person? 
And without fail, <laughs> I've never, ever heard anybody go, no, I'm not. I'm definitely going to hell. Everybody thinks that they're just good enough. And if you ask them, well, what's your standard of measurement? They usually use the very lowest base measurement <laughs> of all measurements in using somebody like Hitler and saying, well, I'm not Hitler. I haven't. Oh, so you haven't killed six million people. That's great. So you'll definitely go to heaven. You know, but what is our standard for goodness? And what is God's standard for goodness? So this man's saying, you know, what must I do? How good do I have to be to crack the nod and to be able to be allowed into heaven? What must I do to live eternally? This person is an expert of the law. He's a lawyer. And so as a lawyer, he wants to find that, that exact, you know, argument that he can argue his way into heaven. Well, if I do that, well, well, then what about this mitigating circumstance? And what about, you know, how this changes the context? And, you know, and, and if you give a standard, people will always try and manipulate the standard. So Jesus answers him. But in Jesus's kind of typical fashion, he hardly ever gives a straight answer. So often he answers um, with a story or a parable or with a question in return, which is just what makes part of what makes Jesus so cool. Um, but what Jesus is actually doing is taking this man on a journey to help him understand. And I'm encouraging you this morning to go on this journey with me. Let's go on this journey on what do we need to do to actually inherit eternal life? What was Jesus setting this lawyer up to understand? Don't miss this. Luke 10 verse 26 to 28. He said to him, what is written in the law? So this is Jesus's answer. Well, what does the law say? And how do you read it? In other words, there it is. There's the interpretation and often the manipulation. How do you understand the law? How do you read it? What is your, your understanding of the law? And he answered with the classical rabbinical summary um, of the, the law of Moses, which were a bunch of commands and rules, 613 to be exact, that were given to Israel in the Old Testament that God gave, and this it explains us to this to us in the New Testament, that God gave these actually to show people that they couldn't fulfill them, that we weren't able to fulfill them. And so it becomes the great doctor that diagnoses this, the, the symptoms and the issues that we have. We didn't know that we were sin, sinful. And so through Moses, we got the law and we realized, oh, if that is the standard of goodness, now we know. Now we don't have to say, well, Hitler. No, it's the law. It's the perfect law of God. In other words, it's perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, and perfect morality. Who could be perfectly moral? Who has never made a mistake? Who's never done something that they knew was wrong? All of us have. So Jesus says, okay, so first of all, you're asking about eternal life. Well, what's your understanding of the law and how do you read it? And this lawyer correctly gives the rabbinical summary. All the laws are captured in this. And if we understood this, we would understand the heart of the law as well. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, just love God with everything that you have and then love your neighbor, love those around you perfectly. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And, and I love that statement because we've got to see the nuance in what Jesus is saying here. So, so okay, so how do we get into heaven? Uh, what does the law say, Jesus says? Well, love God perfectly and love everyone around you absolutely perfectly. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's pretty good. If you could do that, you will have eternal life. 
And so I could imagine this, um, you know, this lawyer just backpedaling. You know, any of you that have ever watched New Girl, um, for those of you that haven't watched New Girl, you'll have to go and Google this or watch it on YouTube. But Nick is our favorite character in Nick, Winston, they're all pretty great. But Nick has this way of kind of sliding out of the room with a kind of like a moonwalk when he knows that he's done something wrong or he is trying to back out of something. And I can imagine this lawyer moonwalking his way out of this question because Jesus has just said to him, yeah, sure, just love perfectly and you'll be good enough for heaven. And so he goes, wait a minute, I'm in trouble. And so I need a, I kind of need to find some way to justify or fix or give better parameters to what I've just asked. So in Luke 10 verse 29, it says, but he desiring to justify himself. You see, he realizes, but I'm not perfect. So now I've got to justify myself. So he wants to add a parameter. So he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like, like give me a parameter here. Give me a minimum standard. Give me something to aim for. This is what we do with God. We do exactly the same thing. Am I good enough? Yeah, I want to be good enough. I think I'm good enough. I'll justify myself. I don't need God to justify me through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I'll justify myself. So how do I justify myself? Let me figure out something to aim for. Well, don't be Hitler. Oh, I'm good. I'll make it into, into heaven. <laughs> it's such bad reasoning. But wanting to justify ourselves, we create a minimum standard of, I think I'm okay. I think I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. And we end up relying on self-effort. Well, I'll just try a little harder this week to, to be better. I'll just try a little harder this week to, um, you know, to think better thoughts and to, and to be more kind to those around me and to be a little encouraging. Maybe read a Bible verse. That's surely that gets me into the game. Wanting to establish our own righteousness. But Jesus is actually, again, taking this lawyer on a journey of helping him understand why his own righteousness will never suffice. This is the reason why we resist the message of the good news of God's grace. This is why we resist grace, even though it's a free gift, is because we want to justify ourselves. We don't want to be saved by some God, some Savior. We want to save ourselves. Romans 10.3 says why the religious people of the day did not want to accept Jesus. In Romans 10.3, it says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness as a free gift and seeking to establish their own righteousness, this is all of us, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Man, that scripture just says it all. Just wanting to, I'm good in myself. I'm a good person. I don't need a Jesus. Oh, maybe for that, those few times when it's outside of my control, I'll pray to Jesus. But the rest of the time, I'm good. But the Bible says in Acts 13, 39, and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes, who puts their faith in what he has done for them on the cross, is justified from all the things, all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, by Jesus, we are justified in a way that following rules or traditions or commands or morals or trying to be a good person could absolutely never, ever, ever make us justified or cause us to be justified. So in that context of 
the lawyer saying, how am I, how can I be good enough? And Jesus replying saying, well, just be perfect. And him replying, well, who's my neighbor? How do I apply that perfection looking for an angle? Jesus goes on to tell a story. And that's the story that I want to look at today in Luke 10. And I'm going to read this through uh, about seven verses from Luke 10, verse 30 to 37. And, uh, and then I'm going to break it up and see what Jesus was really saying to this man, this lawyer um, on this day. So Luke 10 and verse 30 to 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, among thieves, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here comes the priest, a representative of the law. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So incredible. This story that you may have well heard the story of um, the good Samaritan. And, and so often when we read that, we think, yes, we should be good to others because that is part of the message that Jesus is sharing there, that you should love others as yourself, that you should love your neighbor. The problem is that there's something deeper we need to understand first because we've all made decisions to be kind. We've all made decisions to, to love others. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, I think Facebook, Instagram, you know, all over is full of these little, little, little anecdotes that like, just be kind. Well, if we could all just be kind, everybody would just be kind. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, today, today's the day that I'm going to upset some people. Come on, I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be cruel. I'm going to be as hurtful as I can. Bring me my first victim. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning unless they're a little demented that actually decides that they're going to do that. Um, all of us are the victims of our own inability, our lack of capacity, our lack of of, of generosity, our, our lack of love. And it's because there's something in our hearts that's broken that we need to be delivered from and, and healed from. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying here. If you could just love people, then you would do it. But we find that we need God's love. We need God's help to enable us to be able to live in this way. So that's, that's something deeper. Before you get to love your neighbor, you first need to love God with all your heart. You need to understand that. So I want to look at here in Luke 10, 30 to 37, and just break some of those little bits up, right? Because there's a lot in here. The first part says that there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I just believe that when Jesus spoke, everything he said was filled with meaning, especially the words that were recorded in Scripture. I believe there's meaning in that. And this man is going from Jerusalem. That word Jerusalem Jerusalem means city of peace. And this is the place 
of the cross. This is the place where Jesus would give his life outside of that city on the hill of Golgotha. Jesus died on the cross. It's also the city that uh, he was resurrected from the dead. And it's the city that basically is a symbol of his divine authority and rulership. And so you go from this place of the cross to Jericho. Now, Jericho was a place that was the first place that, that was destroyed during the, conqu the conquest of the people of Israel as Joshua led them in to take up the promised land. And there was a judgment that fell on that city. And God actually cursed the city and said that, that no one should ever rebuild it. And so you're going from the place of the cross to the place of, of the curse, from a place of, of the forgiveness to a place of judgment, a place of destruction. In the actual topography um, in the Middle East, if you go to Jerusalem and you walk down to Jericho, it is a quite a steep road that falls about 100 meters in elevation over across over about 30 kilometers. And it's, it's quite a hazardous road. And so a certain man is traveling from a place of the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, to a place of judgment. And on this road, he fell among thieves, among robbers, and they stripped him. That's the next little bit, that he fell among thieves. They stripped him, wounded him, and left him half dead. Now, my question is, who are these thieves? Who are these robbers? Who are the ones that Jesus is explaining, um, you know, jumped out? And, and why didn't Jesus use, you know, a wild animal or the guy just tripped and fell or whatever? Why does he specific, specifically mention somebody being injured by the will of another? In John 10 verse 1, I found this verse which just talks about, about those who, who are thieves and robbers. In John 10 verse 1, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. The sheepfold is a term that describes the church, the people of God. And there is a door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. And the only way for us to become one of his children, one of, one of the flock of God, is through him, through our faith in Jesus. So Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, climbs up, I don't know if you've ever climbed up on anything, but climbs up denotes self-effort, right? If you've ever decided foolishly like I have in the past, hey, here's a mountain. It's a really nice looking mountain. You know, let me try and climb it. I did this in Cape Town. And the first time I did this, I thought, I'm fit, I'm young, I'll get up this mountain in no time. I was seeing other people, old and young, climbing the mountain, and so I thought I was going to go up Table Mountain. I wasn't going to use the cable card that is so generously supplied, but instead I was going to climb up it myself. And so I got about maybe 10 minutes in, and I felt like I was going to cough up my lungs. I literally just lay down on this one rock, and at one point, a granny passed me by as if it could get, could get any worse. And I never saw her again. I could never even catch up with her. She obviously lives in Cape Town and climbs that mountain all of the time and is extremely fit, evidently. So, but for me, I realized climbing is effort. At one point, I thought I would save my water 
And, uh, and I got up to a certain part, like halfway up this mountain. I was like, I'm thirsty enough to finally drink some of my water. And I found that instead of taking normal water, I had taken sparkling water. And so that bottle was about to explode in my backpack. And when I opened it up, the little cap from the top shot into the air. I never saw it come down again. It may still be floating around space somewhere. But climbing denotes effort, self-effort. What is Jesus saying here? Those who teach you to work for salvation, that say that if, unless you follow these commands, you won't be saved. Unless you, you do these five things or these 10 things or these 100 things, you won't be good enough to be accepted by God. They are robbing you. They are thieves. There's only one way into the sheepfold and it's through the door. Anybody who climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. Our message, the good news, is not do more, try harder, sin less. Because we know that we can't do that in our own strength. The law has ultimately come. This, this sin nature that we have, trying to be good enough, it's come and it's beaten us up. If you've ever tried to be good enough, you've been beaten up. It's stripped us. It's removed us of our, you know, stripped us of our, of our dignity and wounded us. And we're left living this life half dead. You're going through life, but you realize this just isn't great. I don't feel good. I feel con condemned. I feel guilty. I either have to ignore and try and pretend like the bad things I'm doing are actually good things and no one cares. And that's one of the reasons people are like, no, there's no God. There's no God. Because if there's a God, then we'd feel guilty about all the things we know we shouldn't be doing. You know, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. And so, and so many times this is just a willful ignorance that we're applying to try and lessen because who can live with that kind of guilt? You know, that's not what the message of the Bible is and the message of Jesus is. We, it leaves us wanting to give up. And I believe that if that's what we think it is, that God's Holy Spirit actually allows us to continue failing until we realize that we cannot do it by ourselves. It says a priest was going down that road and a Levite arrived at that place. A priest is a representative of the law. He serves in the temple as do the Levites. And they are there to administer um, and administrate the, the, the temple sacrifices that are supposed to try and reconnect and atone for people's sins. Both these men represent the law. But what is the thing about the law? In fact, there's a very good reason why the priest and the Levite saw the man who was beaten, stripped of all of his clothes, and passed by on the other side. Because they believed that if you came into contact with common people or, or, or Samaritans or, 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 you know, just anybody that wasn't of righteous standing, then you yourself could actually be defiled through your contact with them. And so if you went into the marketplace or any common space, you had to kind of, you know, do what we're doing right now during the coronavirus, which is sanitize and wash your hands and, and wash everything and, and then put on a mask and then go and, uh, and live the rest of your life. And so, and so we have such great context for this right now, but that's what they believe. And so they applied religious social distancing in this moment. There's a man, he's stripped of his clothes. We don't know if he's a priest. We don't know who he is. And so we'll pass by on the other side. You see, the law will not help you get free from the sinfulness that you have. The, the law could do nothing about our brokenness, only gaze upon it. 
And so the very thing that was supposed to bring life for us to know how to get into heaven actually ended up bringing in death. The law can only diagnose the sickness. It cannot cure it. We needed God's grace for that. Look at this, Romans 7 verse 8, which is Paul basically saying, I want to do good things. I want to live right. But in me, I, I found the opposite force at work. The good things I want to do, I don't do. The bad things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So who will save me from, from this body of death? He says in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, by the laws. Okay, here's the law. I'm going to fulfill it. When we do that, sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was once alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. But I've oftentimes gone to places where I've, I, I never felt that I wanted to do something until I saw a sign saying that I couldn't do it. Like I remember going and driving to um, a housing estate once. And as I drove up to the driveway, there was a boom that uh, kind of, you know, access control. And, and it said on the gate, a big sign that said, do not hoot. Now, I didn't think about hooting before. But when the commandment came, sin revived. The Bible says the strength of sin is in the law. So if you want to be a very, really, really strong sinner, give yourself rules to live by. And you'll find out very quickly how sin, how much sin exists in our human nature. C.S. Lewis says that, that, that we only know how bad we are when we've tried to be very good. And so bad people often know very little about uh, goodness because they've never tried. Uh, in the same way that if you're standing facing the wind, um, you only know how strong the wind is if you stand up and try and resist it. But if you lie down and you just let the wind blow over you, then you don't know how strong the wind really is. And so we don't know how strong our evil desires are until we try to be good. But when we've tried, when we've tried to follow the law, we realize I'm a sinner. I need help. So the law could not help us. But it says, but a certain Samaritan, a certain, a specific Samaritan. The word Samaritan means keeper of the law. Now, there have been many experts of the law, like this lawyer, that have justified themselves using different angles and tricks to justify themselves through their personal interpretation of the law. Many people have wanted to be moral judges and, and uh, you know, stand looking at the lives of others and telling them how they should be living and, you know, judge others from positions of strength. Many, many experts in moral law. But there's only ever been one keeper of the law, one that lived a perfect, sinless life. And that person is Jesus. He is the good Samaritan. He is the one that came to where we were broken and beaten up by sin, passed by, by the law. He came, it says, to where he was. Jesus was in heaven and stepped out of heaven down to us. He took on humanity and human flesh and he came to where these broken, wounded, half-dead people were. That's you and me. Jesus came to us. 
The next thing it says is that as he came to this beaten up man, he had compassion. Compassion is a very strong word in you know, the Hebrew culture and in the Greek language that was used at the time of the New Testament. It, 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 they actually believed, the, the old Hebrew uh, culture believed that compassion was, a, was an emotion that emanated from the gut or the bowels of a person. It, it came from deep within you. You know, that, that those strong um, uh, feelings of empathy came from, from within your gut, a place of tender mercies and compassion and affection. It would be the same as when, you, when you're walking down the street and you get an intense tummy ache and you bend over with, with, with this intense emotion and, and feeling and this pain. That's what the word compassion means. In other words, it's not like this man just, you know, or Jesus just saw our brokenness and was just like, oh, okay, guys, I'll help you out in a moment. In a moment. He was moved. He was heartbroken. He was gut-wrenched. Is that a word? I don't know. Wrenched in his gut for our brokenness. He had compassion. Matthew 14, 14 shows us an example of this. It says, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. You see, the compassion of God moved Jesus all the way from heaven to this earth. He came to where we were and he has compassion. So this is what Jesus is ultimately saying to this lawyer. He's saying, you want eternal life? You want to be good enough for heaven? What I need you to understand is that you are the broken man. You are the one that has been wounded. You've tried to be good, but sin has beaten you up and left you half dead. And I am the only true keeper of the law that has come to heal you. You are looking for ways to save yourself, Jesus is telling him. But I am the only one who can heal you and save you. And I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. This is that good message. This is that good news that people were willing to die for. Not follow some rules, but I have come to give you life, freedom, joy, peace, and unity with God. It says that the Samaritan bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. We know that oil and wine is used in Scripture all over the place to represent blood and, and, and the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying that uh, he's pouring on the brokenness his blood, his blood that redeemed us. The Bible says that by the shedding of his blood on the cross, we have been healed by his stripes. By his wounds, we have been healed. So he pours onto the brokenness, his blood, the blood of forgiveness. We're forgiven. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. He pours his spirit into our lives. That's how we can hear his voice, how we can walk in his power and his strength, how we can have this fellowship with God through the presence of his Holy Spirit. There's forgiveness and there's grace. And there is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He takes the man. And he takes him to an inn and he drops him off there. And when he departs, he takes out two denarii and gives them to the innkeeper. And he said to him, take care of him and whatever you spend when I come again. We believe that Jesus will return. And Jesus says, I will repay you. I believe that this inn 
is the church. At least it's what the church is meant to be. It's what God has called us to be. We are a hospital for the broken. We're a place of acceptance. We're a place of rest. We're a place where people can be refreshed. We're a place where people can meet with God, where the condemnation and the judgment and, and, and all of those things can be put and left outside. We're here to take care of hurting people and to give them hope. And if you're watching this and your experience of church hasn't been that, even if your experience of our church hasn't been that, then I want to apologize on behalf of myself and our church, and if I dare, even other churches. Because I can tell you now that God's intention, and there is no perfect church, and that's the problem. We're all imperfect. But God's intention that He is, is developing on the inside of all of us as a community is not that we should judge people, but love them and that we can help them. And so it's God's idea. And even though the church is imperfect, it's still a place where you can find healing and rest for your soul. And for us serving, those of you that are serving in church, pastors, leaders, worship leaders, whoever may be watching, whatever it costs you, because it does cost us. It costs us a lot, in fact, to give our lives, to serve others and to build God's kingdom. Whatever it costs us, remember this. Jesus says, when I return, I will repay you. He's given us everything we need for now. He's given us all the money we need now to be able to do the jobs he's called us to do. But when he returns, he will repay us whatever else it has cost us. And so we have the grace to do what we need to do, but can also look forward to the reward of heaven. This is what we have in the grace of Jesus and the calling of of the church. We're here to be a place of rest and restoration. Then Jesus says this. He says it to the man that was beaten up and is now healed. He says it to this lawyer that your job here is not to find out how you can justify yourself by your own righteousness, but your job here is to find out how you can make a difference in the lives of others. If I came to to bring life and to help and encourage and strengthen you, then you now have the grace to go and strengthen others. That would be the purest form of a, of a religious expression is to take care of others. Go and do likewise. See, once we've received God's grace, we will have grace for others. I'm pretty sure if that man who was um, helped by the Good Samaritan, who was, you know, his stay at the inn was paid for. He was healed by the kindness of this man who was once a stranger. I'm sure that if in the future he came across someone else, came across someone else lying on the road, that he would do the same for that man as what was done for him. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And so we get to love others. We see in the book of Acts, how when the disciples understood this, they made it their business to go out and to pray for people and help people and share hope with people. And there's this amazing story that as these multitudes were flocking to the disciples to hear the message of Jesus, even though it was, they were under threat and they were risking their lives in doing so. It tells us that some incredible miracles happened. And one of them that I just love was when Peter walked along, even when his shadow touched people, they were healed of their sicknesses. I remember 
when we started Anchor Church, I had coffee who, with Reynard, who has been our music director since day one. And uh, we had just met. We were sitting down having coffee. He had a very long beard and very long hair. And uh, we sat and he drank about 10 cups of black coffee during our discussion. But as we were talking, we spoke about this. We spoke about the miracles that God did and how his desire is to heal people and to heal people through us, through, that our lives can bring healing to others. And he said something that was so significant that I'll never forget. He said, Peter's shadow was the darkest part of him. Our shadows are our darkest parts. But when God's grace has entered into your life, even those dark parts of your life, the parts that you always wanted to keep hidden in the past, can now bring healing. Your story, your wounds, your shadow, when it touches the lives of others, when they see what God has done in your life, it will bring healing to their lives as well. Jesus answers the question of eternal life by essentially saying, the only way you can have eternal life is through me, by coming to me and putting your faith in me. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you're climbing up some other way, you're trying to save yourself, and I will give you rest. At the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. This is how we know God's heart. This is how we are made right with God. It's not by what we do, but what he has done for us. We could never fulfill the law. We could never have been justified through our own efforts. It would only leave us broken and wounded and half dead. But Jesus came. He lifted us up. He redeemed us by his blood. He empowered us by his Holy Spirit. And so now, standing in his grace, the righteousness of God, we get to go and do likewise. I want to encourage you this week. Number one, put your faith in who you are in Christ. Number two, bless somebody else. Help somebody else. Give to somebody else. Do something to, to be a good Samaritan to somebody around you. It is what Jesus has graced us to do. I hope this message encouraged you today. I hope that there's something. Sometimes you hear this message and it won't make sense. Just let it sink in. Ask God to reveal more of his heart and more of his gospel to you. And over time, I believe God will reveal the fullness of who you are in Christ to you. And, uh, and tune in every, every week, every Sunday, and we will continue encouraging you in that thought so that you can know who you are, know your righteousness, know the future that God has for you and your ability to make a difference. We love you and we care about you and we are praying for you. In fact, I want to go ahead and pray for you right now. Let's pray together.